You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The Tuesday after the 4th of July weekend 1978 was my first day as a staff psychiatrist at the Boston Veterans Administration Clinic. As I was hanging a reproduction of my favorite Bruegel painting, The Blind Leading the Blinds, on the wall of my new office, I heard a commotion in the reception area down the hall. A moment later, a large, disheveled man in a stained three-piece suit carrying a copy of Soldier of Fortune magazine under his arm, burst through my door. He was so agitated and so clearly hung over that I wondered how I could possibly help this hulking man. I asked him to take a seat and tell me what I could do for him. His name was Tom. Ten years earlier, he had been in the Marines, doing his service in Vietnam. He had spent the holiday weekend holed up in his downtown Boston law office, drinking and looking at old photographs rather than with his family. He knew from previous years' experience that the noise, the fireworks, the heat, and the picnic in his sister's backyard against the backdrop of dense early summer foliage, all of which reminded him of Vietnam, would drive him crazy. When he got upset, he was afraid to be around his family because he behaved like a monster with his wife and his two young sons. The noise of his kids made him so agitated that he would storm out of the house to keep himself from hurting them. Only drinking himself into oblivion or riding his Harley Davidson at dangerously high speeds helped him to calm down. Nighttime offered no relief. His deep was constantly interrupted by nightmares about an ambush in a rice paddy back in Nam, in which all the members of his platoon were killed or wounded. He also had terrifying flashbacks in which he saw dead Vietnamese children. The nightmares were so horrible that he dreaded falling asleep and he often stayed up for most of the night drinking. In the morning his wife would find him passed out on the living room couch and she and the boys had to tiptoe around him while she made him breakfast before going to school. As the end of the session was drawing to a close, I did what doctors typically do. I focused on the one part of Tom's story that I thought I understood, his nightmares. As a medical student, I had worked in a sleep laboratory observing people's sleep dream cycles and had assisted in writing some articles about nightmares. I also had participated in some early research on the beneficial effects of psychoactive drugs that were just coming into use in the early 1970s. So while I lacked a true grasp of the scope of Tom's problems, the nightmares were something I could relate to. And as an enthusiastic believer in a better life through chemistry, I prescribed a drug that we found to be effective in reducing the incident and severity of nightmares. I scheduled Tom for a follow-up the next week. When he returned for his appointment, I eagerly asked Tom how my medicines had worked. He told me he hadn't taken any of the pills. Trying to conceal my irritation, I asked him why. He said, I realized that if I take the pills and the nightmares go away, I will have abandoned my friends and their deaths will have been in vain. 
I need to be a living memorial to my friends who died in Vietnam. I was stunned. Tom's loyalty to the dead was keeping him from living his own life just like as his father's devotion to his friends back in the Second World War had kept him from living. Both fathers' and sons' experiences on the battlefield had rendered the rest of their lives irrelevant. How had that happened and what could be done about it? That morning I realized that I would probably spend the rest of my life in my professional life trying to unravel the mysteries of trauma. How do horrible experiences cause people to become hopelessly stuck in the past? What happens in people's minds and brains that keeps them frozen, trapped in a place that they desperately wish to escape? Why did this man's war not come to an end in February 1969 when his parents embraced him at Logan's International Airport after his long flight back from Da Nang? Tom's need to live out his life as a memorial to his comrades taught me how he was suffering from a condition much more complex than simply having bad memories or damaged brain chemistry or altered fear circuits. Before the ambush in the rice paddy, Tom had been a devoted and loyal friend, someone who enjoyed life with many interests and pleasures. In one terrifying moment, trauma had transformed everything. During my time at the VA, I got to know many men who responded similarly. Faced with minor frustrations, our veterans often flew instantly into extreme rages. The public areas of the clinic were pockmarked with the impact of their fists on the drywall and security was kept constantly busy protecting claims agents and receptionists from enraged veterans. At home, my wife and I were coping with similar problems with our toddlers, who regularly threw temper tantrums when they were told to eat their spinach or to put on warm socks. Why was it then that I was utterly unconcerned about my kids' immature behavior, but deeply worried about what was going on with these vets? aside from their size, of course, which gave them the potential to inflict much more harm than my two-footers at home. The reason was that I felt perfectly confident that with proper care my kids would gradually learn to deal with frustrations and disappointments, but I was skeptical that I would be able to help my veterans reacquire the skills of self-control and self-regulation that they had lost in the war. Bessel van der Kolk is the author of Traumatic Stress, The Effects of Overwhelming Experience on Mind, Body, and Society. His new book is The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Thank you for joining me, Bessel. Thank you. You know, this is a really interesting book because as you describe this experience at the beginning, I began to realize that trauma is a transformative experience for us. And that's something I, I had never considered it as before. Right. Uh, at one moment your life goes along one way after a trauma uh, there's a whole and a radical transformation that throws you off your appointed course. Yeah. Now we first rediscovered trauma so to speak in Vietnam veterans returning from war and this was an experience that you had personally. Right. Talk about the impact of you of your personal experience on your professional right. perception of trauma. Yeah. yeah, I'm always a little careful about it because so many of us have traumatic experiences. Like uh, the majority of people have had traumatic, traumatic experiences. I had some memories of stories about the Second World War that had a very 
deep impact on me as a kid, but I'm one of out of five children, and my brothers and sisters don't care one hoot about studying trauma. Uh, so you cannot make a simple linear thing, oh, something happened to him as a kid, and that's why he became an expert in trauma. Um, but certainly the stories that my Vietnam veterans then told me about their war experiences uh, hit a chord with me and hit me a chord with me of things that had puzzled me uh, from the time of, I was a very small child, namely the irrationality of people, how people do things that go against their belief but seem to have no control over, that perfectly nice people sometimes blow up or freeze. And as a kid, I witnessed that. Don't know what I did in the intervening years, but when the Vietnam veterans started to tell me about those experiences, I went like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I saw this as a kid. It's um, one of the real important points of your book is something you uh, mentioned here up at the Upshot, and I want to reiterate that, that trauma is not limited to people who have suffered through some extreme experience, like a big disaster that we see on the news or some kind of murder or shooting or something. Trauma is something that's very common, much more common than we would yeah. intellectually assume. Right. So, so I think what's emerged over the years is that there's two issues here. One is being exposed to something overwhelmingly horrible that you have no control over, and that's trauma. And that has a different impact depending on how old you are. But if you're a little kid and something bad happens to you and your parents take care of you, you take your clues from your parents. And kids get only as traumatized as their parents are because they are sort of identified and merged with parents. If your parents are the source of danger or, yeah, the source of danger or overreact to your distress or don't meet your distress in a very serious way, uh, freeze in response to your distress, then you get overwhelmed in a way that in some way similar to being overwhelmed by a car accident or an assault in an adult. Namely, you have you lose your natural healing mechanisms, namely adults who are there for you. Uh, so uh, our brain is wired to depend on each other for comfort, safety, and consolation. And particularly as a child, if you cannot turn to the adults around you to make you feel safe and to comfort you, then it has quite a profound effect on the development of your mind and brain. And in some ways, uh, when that happens to you as a kid, you develop symptoms similar to that of soldiers going to war, but in some ways they're quite different. You make a, a point here, I think that's also important, is that we are a we species. We depend upon one another, and w our transformative healing journey begins with co communal communication. Absolutely. We are, we are wired to live in tribes, and we don't really exist independent from our social surroundings. Most of our, at least the front of our brain, is wired to be in relationship and to cooperate and work with and interact with other people. And most people do extremely poorly when they are separated from the tribe. The ultimate punishment is to be banished from the company of other people, basically. Now, you read a little bit about uh, Tom, the veteran, yeah. and this is a really interesting uh, 
example. And one of the things that you learned from him was that the result of trauma can be a confusion about whether one is a victim or a willing participant. And I think that is a really interesting uh, confusion that, that uh, makes recovery, the transformative recovery journey, all that much harder. You got that very right. And that as long as you're an innocent bystander and something happens to you and you just feel like, boy, I was just at the wrong time at the wrong place and you can do something about it, recovery is in the cards pretty soon. But if you feel like you were too weak to stand up for yourself, if you blame yourself for somehow collaborating your trauma, if you went to a place where you could expect something to happen, if you uh, took revenge on the killing of your best friend by doing something terrible in your surroundings, as oftentimes happens with soldiers, if you're a kid who's molested and you feel like this must be because I love uh, my daddy or my uncle too much and that's why this is happening to me, um, then this issue of shame and self-blame and self-hatred becomes a gigantic contaminating factor in the whole recovery process. One of the things I think that's really interesting in this book is that this is also a chronicle of your journey through our society's understanding of what trauma is and the import of it. And uh, a fellow named Charles Fort, who was a scientific skeptic and often very skeptical of science, once noted that uh, science has its fashions, just like culture, just like art. And that's one of the things that's really clear in this mm -hmm. book is trauma has gone in and out of fashion over the years. Absolutely. Uh, it starts, as far as we know, somewhere in the 1870s when people in France get very interested in these strange things that women do that they called hysteria. And there was a big study of that at the time. Um, and then people sort of realized that this has to do with sexual abuse when you're a child. People offer associate that phenomenon with Freud, but it really started way bef before Freud. That was Janet um, who did Janet, that? Janet, but a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. you know, it was like today, a lot of people are studying the same thing mm -hmm. because we're a field of fashion and <laughs> uh, you never do this all by yourself. Um, and, and then um, those people get kicked out of the hospital where these studies be, were, are being done in 1902, and then the First World War breaks out. Gigantic. Uh, amount of interest in, in trauma, trauma in soldiers. And in 1917, the British general staff ushers an edict saying, you are no longer allowed to publish anything on the subject of shell shock. Uh, doctors are not allowed to diagnose their patients with shell shock uh, because it will undermine the morale of our fighting men. And basically, before a year before the end of the First World War, this diagnosis disappears and people no longer pay attention to it. So there's sporadic attention here and there. And again, it's fascinating that the issue of child abuse is barely paid attention to. It's always men going to war, and women and children are always secondary. And the issue of kids comes up for a moment in 1929 when a guy by the name of Sandra Ferenczi writes a, an article called the confusion of tongues between the adult and the child, the language of tenderness and the language of passion, in which he says, children are little love machines. They are just programmed to make people love them. And 
because of that kids thrive. Um, adults, in many ways, are like sex machines. They want to have sex. And when these two things meet each other, and an adult uses a child for sexual gratification, then this child becomes horribly confused about, is this love? Am I being assaulted? Does it feel good? Does it feel bad? Am I a bad person? Am I a good person? And it leads to an intense confusion about what's right and what's wrong. And uh, so he writes that paper. He promptly gets kicked out of psychiatric society for having written that paper, as so often happens. And then the field again dies and then comes back into the Second World War. And so many years after the end of the Second World War, I'm this young doctor sitting at the VA, and I go down to the library after meeting these veterans, and I scour the library for books about war trauma, and there's not a single book in the whole library. Uh, so this is the cyclical phenomena of interest and disappearance. One of the things that has made a huge difference is the technology. And the right. first technology yep. that we were able to toss at trauma was drugs. Right. And you were right there at the beginning. Right. So talk about the pros and cons of Prozac and all its many imitators. Right. Well, you know, again, it's a big cultural phenomenon. In we are all all we know is is talking to people in the for most of the 19th century, and suddenly drugs come around. And psychiatrists love drugs because it makes them real scientists because they, we can now measure chemicals and we can set up laboratories and we can measure <laughs> things. And it's so, quantitative. You know, so it's quantitative and we are go, going hung, uh, hung, gung-ho. And then we also discover there's money in them, there are hills. You can be, not only do you become respectable, like as if you were a real scientist, but you also can make a lot of money prescribing drugs to people. And so my profession more or less gets beholden to that chemical model. And, you know, I was very much part of that. I did the first study on Prozac for PTSD, was part of the first study on Zoloft for PTSD. Um, and it's not great, but they, they're helpful in a little way. But but it's interesting, they're helpful for our civilian patients. They don't do a thing for our veteran patients in the studies that I did. And that becomes fascinating, is why do abused women and victims of domestic violence respond differently to these drugs than soldiers do? And we have never answered that question. Um, so, but then so it, it slowly becomes clear that this is not really going to yield a lot. Nobody's going to get cured from taking medications. And a new technology comes in. And boys are always driven by technology. We always want to do the latest toys. And so suddenly we start being able to take pictures of the brain. And again, I happen to be at the right place at the right time. And we do the first neuroimaging study of what happens to trauma in the brain. And we see a lot of interesting stuff we didn't know before. And even to this day, um, we have learned a lot from being able to visualize the effect of trauma on brain development and all this sort of stuff. And you know, you have a great quote at yeah, the beginning of one yeah. of the chapters where somebody describes if you could see the brain, it would be all lit up. Right. And it was right. somebody long before that. I thought that was I think really... Pavlov? I think, yeah, it was Pavlov, uh, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, one of the heroes of the book is Darwin. I thought so too, uh, yeah. Darwin just nailed it back in 1872 
And then much of what Darwin says actually gets totally forgotten until you know some people of my generation dig him up and say, wow, how did this guy know so much way before we could visualize the brain or knew any of the circuits? But he deals, deals a lot of this issue. Um, and so, so we, get, we get into this uh, brain stuff, and I do too, and I'm still into this brain stuff, but that becomes the lens through which we look at the world. And so technology provides us with the glasses through which we see the world. And now dance therapists and massage therapists and uh, spiritual people all say, hey, can you do some brain scans on how my particular method changes the brain? Because you really are not a respectable person until you show the changes in the brain, because that's right now where our paradigm lies. But even that paradigm is beginning to shift a little bit, because as of late, we can measure genes and DNA. And that's the cutting-edge technology, and now we're all running after that mysterious gene that's going to give us the answer about how this stuff is transmitted from generation to generation. And we're all excited because it's a new technology. And that's how, how the world is. Until the next technology uh, comes yeah, exactly. in, and yeah. we're all wearing right. narrow shirts right. again. Right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, this, the, yeah. the narrow shirts of science. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I think that is really interesting about this book is the way you look at uh, trauma and the way that we've looked at trauma, especially with regards to the DSM. Uh -huh. This is the Bible of your industry. I and hope not. <laughs> uh. Well, it well. was originally intended to give the uh, industry some legitimacy it was going to be the standard you know against no which it scientific. wasn't it wasn't i wasn't no because i was part of this whole process okay what it was was a way for people who wanted to do research and drugs to be able to communicate with each other mm. uh, and you need to do that in order to be scientific you need to delineate what you're studying and that's all it was for so in the preamble to the first edition of the contemporary dsm it says this is much too imprecise to ever serve for forensic or insurance purposes. And that warning disappears in the next edition. And now the main thing that drives us is forensic and insurance purposes. And it has more or less killed our field. Because now we live with these sort of pseudo-diagnoses that really don't incorporate anything what we really know about attentional systems in the brain and regulatory systems in the brain and development and attachment and how people are wired together. And so we live with this, um, this horrible system that really probably at the end does more harm than good. Well, talk about the develop The real transformation happened um, in the DSM-4 and particularly in the DSM-5 because these are places where the decision was made not to diagnose trauma. It seems pretty crazy. Well, and it's not entirely true. Ironically. No, 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 the, 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 like the DSM process for PTSD, which I no longer was part of, was a very careful process to delineate every little careful thing about adult one-time PTSD. What it... What it failed to do, and that's really what my group and I, as a very large group of people, actually worked very hard on doing, is to incorporate the effect of trauma through the lifespan. 
And so if you get traumatized, neglected, abused, when you're two years old, it has a very different effect on mind and brain than when you're being abused when you're eight years old or 12 or 18 or 24 because you have a different brain and this stuff has different impacts on your brain at different times and creates certain behaviors, mental phenomena, capacity to regulate yourself at different ages. And to my mind, to really uh, see the people we work with and to take whatever their problems are seriously, we need to really incorporate how the impact is different at different times of development and that um, trauma that has, has been inflicted on a person at different times of development requires different treatments depending on where their mind and brain is at or has become stuck at. So you may be 50 years old, it may have been abused as a three-year-old, but you probably have fairly similar mental physiological problems as a 24-year-old who was also abused as a three-year-old. I'd like you to talk about um, the effects that our experience, external experience has in shaping the physical right. brain itself. Right. Because this is where I think this, where the rubber meets the road mm. as far as the science goes, the neuro, where the neuroscience yeah. is really helping yeah. you diagnose right. these right. different right. kinds of trauma. So we come to, with a ready-made tiny little sliver of brain into the world. Uh, even that gets formed to some degree by experience, uh, inter-uterine experience, but we don't know much about it. As you come into the world with your little brainstem that does what little babies can do, sleeping, eating, crying, uh, pooing, um, you know, breathing, very elementary self-regulatory capacities. And then the brain starts meeting the environment. And then the next part of the brain comes, comes online, and that's the part of the brain that creates a map of who you are in relationship to the world around you. And it tells you what is safe, what is dangerous, whether you're a good person, whether you're a bad person, uh, what feels good and what feels bad. And that map gets fairly solid and fairly stable in a use-dependent manner. So if the whole world laughs at you, smiles at you, and is there for you at the right time, in the right place, you develop a brain that says, you know, I can do anything because I know that sooner or later things are going to be okay, and I'm a good person because good things happen to me all the time, and that becomes your map of the world. If at that point you get abused, neglected, and abandoned, uh, you, your map of the world becomes, I'm not worthy of people's attention, I'm no good, uh, people aren't safe, people may smile at me, but sooner or later they go to turn on me, and that becomes this very deep brain map of who you are in relationship to the world. And that's all before you develop a rational brain. And that rational brain comes on top of all that. And this is the attachment. Uh, so, so the attachment, uh, that early attachment uh, system, really shapes a lot of very deep unconscious internal maps of who we are in relationship to our surroundings. And so later on you develop your rational brain, and you see this oftentimes in people with early trauma, is that they may have brilliant rational brains. I know in my practice uh, people who have won the highest prizes in the land and who are brilliant scientists or lawyers or judges or whatever, and the world thinks that they are resilient people and that they're doing great. I know that deep inside they feel terrible, that they 
cut themselves, that they mutilate themselves, that they cannot sustain a strategic relationship because that deep uh, primitive part of their brain um, was not made to feel safe at that particular time. Uh, so, um, so the rational brain is what, like you and I, are we sitting here, you look like a very decent, nice person, but I don't know what happens to you when in your private life and what upsets you and freaks you out and uh, turns you on sexually because we don't, we cannot see that about each other necessarily. And so we have these layers of our brain that get activated at different times. Um, and trauma, most of all, is lodged in those very primitive parts of our brains. It gets lodged in our brainstem. Uh, so when you get traumatized, uh, that baby brain uh, gets very disturbed, and you can no longer sleep, and you have trouble eating, and you have trouble calming yourself down. And so some of the most elementary parts of the brain get disturbed, and in order to help a person recover from trauma, you need to actually restore those very elementary brain functions. Now, one of the things that you talked about is, uh, and I think this is really interesting and pertinent and important to understand, is that our rational part of our brain, capable, great, can break down the problems, can tell, knows exactly what we should do. But no matter how great its arguments are, it's not going to have any impact on the emotional part of our brain, or not well, much. I, I, I wouldn't say that. No, uh, you know, you may be terribly attracted to somebody, but most people are more or less able to cool it and to not act on it. <laughs> or they may be terribly angry with somebody and sort of move back a little bit and not act on it. So, you know, that's why we have rational brains, is to say, uh, um, the guy who first described it said, our, the, the relationship between these two parts of our brain is like a more or less competent rider with a more or less tamed horse. Uh, and so as long as the weather is calm and everything is quiet, you feel like you're in control of yourself. But the moment that things get bad, that emotional brain takes over, and with the result that almost everybody I know has said terrible, nasty, and mean things to people they love in critical moments. And then uh, almost every adult I know has needed to apologize for behaving very badly at the moment of great stress, because that's when our frontal lobe shut down, our limbic system takes over, and starts really running the show. So the big challenge is, how do you gain control over your limbic system? How do you gain control over that emotional brain that has been changed by the trauma and that causes you to behave in a way that embarrasses you and hurt, hurts other people? Talk about how trauma affects our memory because I think you get into some interesting yeah. uh, material here, uh, yeah. giving, bringing back the idea of repressed memories in a more scientific manner, I think, than we, they were first introduced well, as. Well, in, in a way, we all have repressed memories. Huh? When you asked me about my kindergarten, uh, and I haven't thought about it for a long time, I'll say, oh, I remember vaguely just somewhere, and I remember the name of a teacher. But if you sit with me and quietly help me, sort of in a little trance state, to really focus on what my classroom may have looked like and stuff, stuff will come back to mind. And it happens to me f still fairly regularly, like 
Well, I, used to, I, I used to live in San Francisco in 1964, uh, and now I come back here, spent the weekend here, and suddenly stuff comes back to mind that happens to be happened to me in 1964 that I haven't thought about for forever. Um, so you know, we have these things that come back, and that's how these traumatic memories also spring to people's minds. They see a movie. Uh, Somebody touches them in a particular way, there's a particular smell, and suddenly that old memory <laughs> snaps back, and they haven't thought about it for a long time. Um, so this thing is, is very complex, uh, because you know my memory of my kindergarten teacher is not a traumatic memory, so she'll come to mind and they'll think, oh, she was a nice lady. But when you have been traumatized, you, your mind tries very hard to put it out of your mind, to forget about it. And so when the stuff gets triggered, you may become extremely upset. And it may require a visit to the emergency room because you may start behaving as if at that moment you're being raped or upset or freaked out again. And, and that is a phenomenon that is actually there's nothing unusual about it. And the big debate about it was largely a function of the maneuvers of the lawyers who were trying to protect the pedophile priests who were being accused 20 years ago, who said, oh, these memories about uh, ch childhood sexual abuse by priests, oh, that's just a product of therapists implanting false memories into them. But you know, when the, those trials were over, the whole concern about these repressed memories totally disappeared. You know, one thing I, I've always been interested in is the efficacy of talk therapy. Yeah, me too. Uh, being a part-time talk therapist, I've, I, I've wondered a lot about uh, talk. And at the end, I thought the, the language chapter of my book is one of the chapters I'm proudest of. Um, because I really talk about the glory and the limits of language. Uh, that to be able to say to somebody, you know, this happened to me. I was raped. I was abused. Um, I cannot make it anymore. It's a very powerful and relieving thing and for you to say, let me help me. Let me help you. What happened to you? And to finally tell the story, even though you may feel ashamed, you may feel overwhelmed uh, when you talk about it, but if you meet a lack of judgment and an openness, and an openness of nobody who wants to fix you, but who, uh, somebody who just gives you the room to s allow yourself to know what you know, very important part of life. Um, but being able to talk about it at the end probably does not make that core survival brain of yours feel calm. And so you probably still have to do other things to lay that part of your brain to rest. Uh, those traumatic memories that are lodged deep in the animal part of your brain. What kind of physical work and connection to our body can we make to begin the transformative process of healing. Uh, you talk about yoga, and I think that's a really interesting uh -huh. chapter. Well, see, I think yoga is just one thing that we were fortunate enough and hardworking enough to get this National Institute of Health grant to study yoga for PTSD. And then we found that yoga indeed for a group of people who had basically not responded to any form of treatment or medications, that yoga was more effective than any medication had ever been in any study. And so yoga turned out to be quite a 
useful treatment or useful way of coping or dealing with it. Um, that doesn't mean that yoga is better than anything else. We happen to have studied yoga, but you know, I don't know if yoga is better or than qigong or better than drumming in circles or better than yoga dancing or, or tango dancing. Uh, uh, the way we got into yoga is that on our brain scans, we saw that the areas related to your relationship to your body were very messed up. And what we saw in our patients was how they cut, had cut off awareness to their bodies because what became clear is that at the end, the trauma is not the story of what happened a long time ago, but the feelings of feeling uh, freaked out, overwhelmed, uh, heartbroken, gut-wrenched, and the sensations in your body really are the imprint of the trauma on your sensory experience. That's really where the trauma plays itself out. And so what we realized and not just us, but other people also, um, is that uh, traumatized people try to run away from their physical sensations, just try to suppress that. And the price they pay for that is that they lose all feeling for all kinds of things, uh, because our body really provides us with the signals of what feels good and what feels bad. And dissociation. You, uh, so you dissociate your body. And if you dissociate your body, you really cannot feel pleasure or pain. And so you go through the world feeling bored and life is meaningless and that sort of stuff. Um, so, And then another part of a yoga thing was that we realized that you can, um, there's a, a way in which the back of the brain, that very primitive arousal system, the brain. The vagus uh, nerve? Uh, yeah, actually, so the autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. that it can regulate itself by uh, breathing more slowly and more deeply. And you can measure it by something called heart rate variability. And so we did really did a study to measure what could change heart rate variability. And we happened to use yoga, and that opened up this whole body investigation. But there's other ways of, cha of changing that part of your brain also. Um, uh, you can do it with little following little monitors, M waves, heart math, little apps you can downloading your telephone, and if you just breathe at a certain rhythm, you can change that arousal level in the back of your brain. Talk about neurofeedback. I think this is a really interesting yeah, uh, yeah, idea. Yeah, Neurofeedback is, to my mind, the frontier of neuroscience. It's applied neuroscience. Um, it is something that people actually have been working on for a long time, but it's still a very chaotic area. Namely, that by playing games with your own brain waves, you can change the way that your brain organizes its internal rhythms. So, by hooking people's own brain waves up to a computer, uh, you can uh, organize them to play computer games in which you in, uh, encourage them to make more of one particular waveform in a particular part of your brain. Um, and less of another, and when you do that, the result is that you, people feel more focused, more attentive, more present, less disturbed, less panicky, and so you can really help people to restore and rewire their own brains, um, probably in many ways. So what we're studying here is rewiring people's brains with uh, computer games, but 
you know, you probably also can rewire your brains by doing martial arts or doing other sort of things. But, uh, you know, doing this piece of technology, of course, makes it more definable. So you, you could do better science on it that way. This ability to change our own brains, it's called neuroplasticity. That's right. And, and I'd like you to talk about making use of that with regards to this kind of recovery process, the healing journeys that we can take in terms of, say, for example, owning yourself. This right. is an important, I think, right. the first step in, in many ways. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, trauma does change your brain. And it changes a whole variety of different parts of your brain. It makes you more frightened. It makes you more numbed out. It changes your filtering system, so it becomes harder for your brain to know what's relevant what's, and what's irrelevant. It makes it harder for your brain to, um, to learn from experience. So even though the same thing has happened to you five times, your brain somehow, have a, somehow has a hard time learning and say, okay, I won't hook up with guys like that anymore, or I won't do the same old stuff anymore. So, so things change on many different levels, which I try to talk about in simple ways in my book. Um, and then you can change those brainwaves. And so you can actually um, play these computer games with your own brainwaves that allow you to become focused and attentive. And we can show how people's brainwaves actually change as they play these games. And we can measure that people are actually more focused, that the monkeys in their brain that keep chattering are quieter, and they feel more alive in the present. And to my mind, feeling alive in the present is the most important thing in terms of healing from traumatic stress. And so so the, the whole issue is um, that the brain gets damaged, but that's not the end of the story. The brain is to some degree plastic. Sometimes people exaggerate plasticity and think, oh, you can just change people's brains. Uh, anybody who's been married for longer than 10 years knows that it's very hard to change somebody else's brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy. Uh, but, but it can be done. Yeah, and so I think much of our job as a psychiatrist, mental health person, is to really learn how can we most effectively help this person to activate that neuroplasticity in order to get the brain that can be here and not hijacked by something else. Uh, neuroplasticity uh, has some problems, too, in that uh, you talk about, I think this is really interesting, every time we retrieve a memory, we modify it. It's like remembering something is like that game of telephone. Right, right. that's true. But, you know, tra trauma is not about memory. Mm -hmm. huh? Trauma, I said it before, but people have such a hard time getting there. It's about the emotions. It's, it's not a story. It's about how your body automatically reacts to certain stimuli. And so your memory is a story that you tell to explain what happens. But that is a sort of an epiphenomenon, sort of on the top of everything, because below that, your body has been trained to respond with panic and fear to particular sounds or particular smells or particular body sensations. And there's not much of a memory connected with it. In a way, it's a memory, but it's not a memory like a story. It's, an, it's a conditioned response, basically. You mentioned the word epi, and that made me think of the real, one of the real cutting edges of this book, epigenetics. 
So I'd like you to tell what epigenetics is and why Uh it's so important. Well, actually, yeah, it it is important. But as I said, I'm I'm also, again, skeptical about (laughs) going overboard with it. Um, What what epigenetics means is that people in the last 10 years or so have discovered that the way that genes get activated depends on your environment. Uh, So some of the best work has been done in monkeys, for example, is that that people have been able to identify certain genes that make a creature, whether you're a monkey or a human being, um, vulnerable to blow up and to become very aggressive. And so then what they find is that if you have a gene like that and you're raised under conditions of deprivation and neglect and abuse, that gene becomes a very powerful gene and you're very likely to grow up to become aggressive and explosive. But if you have that gene and you grow up in a situation where whoever takes care of you is very nurturant and loving and protective, you become a perfectly normal monkey or human being, or sometimes an even better than average monkey or human being. And so the same gene that under conditions of deprivation um, is responsible in part for aggressive assaultive behavior under other conditions can lead to people being energetic leaders in their community, let's say. Nature and nurture combined. Nature and nurture, yeah. Uh, You know, one of the things I I really liked most about this book was that you do a great job of taking us through the transformative giving us a firm understanding of the transformative nature of trauma. And then once we understand trauma, you take us through the transformative ways of healing as we at present understand them. And I think that's a really great journey for us as readers of this book. And what interests me is that you talked about changing our brainwaves. I think one of the best ways for us to retrain our own minds is reading itself is a right. really powerful activity. Right. Uh, yeah, that's one of the really, actually, initially quite surprising findings. And um, many neuroscientists were involved in the evolution of that idea. But like uh, Joseph Ledoux finds that um, most of our brain is devoted to social interactions and talking and yakking and playing with, with other people. But there's a uh, part of your brain that which we call the midline structures, sort of one in the middle of your forehead, like a of your head, like a mohawk. Uh, that are structures of the brain that are devoted to you and your self experience and your self, uh, your self being in self, as we like to call it. Um, and then various pieces of research show that that self experience gets very damaged by trauma. And the more traumatized you are, the less of a sense of self you have, the less of a sense of, I need this, this is what's good for me, this is really what I want to do, this is what I'll fight for. And so that sense of self gets very disturbed. And that, that may be one of the most, most profound pieces of damage of trauma. And so then if that's the case, then helping people to enhance their sense of self, their sense of this is who I am, this is where I stand, uh, would be one of the most important treatments, stuff that we are exploring in our lab to the degree that we can with our limited funding, um, and that's to really 
help people to experience themselves. For example, I am very curious about like having kids box, boxing or martial arts, uh, because boxing and martial arts requires um, your brain to pay very careful attention to what's going on around you, but you also need to be very aware of what's going on inside of you in order to move in the right direction and to feel what's happening inside. Um, um, you know, we actually learned this from Nelson Mandela, who said that what was transformative for him out there back in Robben Island when he was in prison for 27 years was that boxing, he said, made him into the mindful person that he is. Because at the end, boxing taught him how to really pay attention to his needs, but very much to what the other person was also up to, and to move his body in order to get in sync with what was happening there. And I think uh, the first time I actually heard him talk about it, um, I was stunned. And then as I thought about it more, I thought, yeah, that makes perfect sense, because that's exactly the brain areas of self-awareness, awareness of others that gets very affected by having been traumatized. And so uh, cultivating that system would be very useful. Uh, and that is where I think part of our investigation should go. And I think sometimes you need to jump ahead of what we know and say, just start doing martial arts with traumatized kids as we do in our outfit um, and just help kids to engage with each other, um, stuff like that. The one of the things that I think is the outcomes of this book for me was this the tie between the mirror neurons that really are the source of compassion in human beings and the importance of the strength of the society. You say the most important part of curing for trauma is really having a support net. Well, I think you mix a lot of metaphors here that I, I wouldn't <laughs> all use in the same sentence. Um, I talk about mirror neurons as somewhat metaphors uh, and some concrete evidence of how we pick up each other's emotions. And so certainly picking up each other's emotions and getting in sync with each other is in a way what life is all about. And uh, what we know is that when two people get in sync with each other and they start moving and dancing and making music, you cannot help but giggle. And when you get a sense of, boy, you and I are just engaged with the same dance, you get a sense of safety and surrender and saying, I'm okay here. Uh, trauma is the exact opposite of that. Uh, trauma is about nobody sees me, nobody takes care of me, there's nobody there for me, there's no safe haven for me, and it's about being rhythmically disconnected from the world around you. Um, nobody sees me, nobody pays attention to me, and that has very profound effects on very deep parts of the mind and the brain. So restoring that sense of, of being seen, being known, rhythmically engaged with the people around you is at the core of healing from trauma. Bessel, this is a fascinating look at trauma. And one of the things that strikes me about it is that you do a great job of showing how trauma transforms not just our minds, but our biologies and our memories. Talk about your journey discovering how trauma does this. Well, there were some important milestones. And much of the milestones have to do with learning about the brain. And that was new, because people have talked about trauma for at least 150 years, but being able to see what happens in the brain really helped us to understand certain things. 
And so the first thing that became clear is that a part of the brain called the amygdala, um, sort of the meaning slash danger detector, the brain, the smoke detector, as I call it, gets changed, and you become very sensitive to those smoke signals, and that you can do certain things to dampen the smoke system of the brain so you don't keep overreacting to the world around you. Um, the other big event was our first neuroimaging of traumatized human beings that showed that the part of our brain that is rational and reasonable and that has language tends to shut down when people start reliving and re-experience their trauma. So you cannot really rely on reason and insight to take care of that issue. Um, the third big milestone was learning this very strange treatment called EMDR, uh, where you uh, basically ask people to track your fingers when you move them from side to side uh, as they call up the memories or the images, the sounds, the sensations, uh, the thoughts they had back then when it happened, and to discover, as we did, that uh, with these eye movements, the memories become memories. That when it's over, uh, very oftentimes people can say, yeah, a terrible thing happened to me back then, but today is October 2014, and I'm liberated from it. It just is a nasty experience that I had a long time ago. And so for me, uh, seeing how effective this seemingly bizarre treatment was where you move people's eyes from side to side, made me very curious about getting away from the drug and yacking paradigm that has always um, been dominant in our culture, and to see how you can heal people without necessarily using language as the primary modality, and without using drugs as the other primary modality. And so that's how we got to learn about movement, got to know about breathing, got to know about touch, got to know about embodying different roles in your lives, like playing theater and being somebody different from who you ordinarily are. And so all every step along the way, um, we have been informed by this amazing neuroscience revolution that we all have been part of in one form or another, where uh, many people, um, I, to a very small degree myself, uh, have learned what happens in the brain when you're traumatized and what happens in the brain when you get people to feel safe and to feel calm again and to be in the moment and how certain things of do, doing with yourself, like um, doing meditation, prayer, uh, being very deeply attentive to yourself, actually builds up the region of your brain that helps you to be more in control and more reflective. I've been speaking with Bessel van der Kolk. His new book is The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. Thank you for speaking with me, Bessel. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.